0: A lot of patients are afraid, and I say, find your voice. A lot of patients are afraid to push back on doctors. And I don't mean push back in an ugly way, in a mean way. I'm just saying, ask the questions that might be tougher. Um, Listen to your gut.
1: Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, White Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however, emotionally and mentally, as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day, and welcome to Give A Heck. On today's show, I welcome Melissa Mullampy. Melissa is a clinical psychologist, healthcare expert, advocate, and clinically acclaimed author, has devoted her career to helping people navigate and understand America's very complicated and imperfect healthcare system. After the unfortunate death of her mother from ovarian cancer and an eight-month-long nightmare, I will add, Melissa began a passionate journey to fight for patient advocacy. During my mother's cancer diagnosis and treatment, I saw firsthand the failures of a broken medical system, a system full of good people working in a critically deficient framework, says Melissa. Her memoir, Not in Vain, a promise kept is an unflinching chronicle of loss that takes a hard look at the state of medical care in the United States. Melissa is on a mission to help patients and medical professionals improve the quality of care in America by raising awareness, facilitating communication, and educating others so they don't have to go through what her family and mother did. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Melissa. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You're welcome. So, Melissa, um, and those that are new to the show... Um, I start off my show with a discussion of a person's origin story, you know, from their earliest recollections to where they are today, because it helps the people listening It helps me be able to understand where you're coming from and why you're on the current journey that you're on today. So if you could do me a favor, share whatever you feel comfortable with, starting at whatever age, um, your origin story and where you are currently today
0: okay, I was um, I was born uh, about an hour from New York City in a small town called Brewster. Um, my parents were blue-collar workers. Um, um we I had one sibling. I still have that sibling. Um, we I went to public school systems. I From the beginning, I was pretty much a tomboy. I did things that were usually against the grain, especially back in the 70s. One thing I remember distinctly was in fourth grade. Um, I went to music class and I told the um, teacher that I wanted to play drums. And he looked at me and, you know, this is back in the 70s. And he said, Girls don't play drums. And he handed me a flute. And I was terrible at the flute. I practiced for, I don't know, a couple months and I could never get it right. And he heard me practicing one day and he said, are you the girl that wanted to play the drums? And I said, yes. And he said, go buy yourself a pair of sticks and a pad. And I did. And um, the funny thing about that is once I started playing and practicing and taking private lessons from middle school through high school, I was first chair in the band, which was kind of cool because when you're first chair, you get to give the other people their parts. So if I wanted to play the drum set, um, I could play the drum set and if somebody, you know, I could make the boys play the bass drum or the cymbals or the timpanis or whatever I felt like for the day. Um, so, so that was kind of cool. Um, I always, I guess if I'm honest with myself, um, uh, I, I didn't always follow the rules, I guess. Um, you know, I was, uh, the second child. So my sister always teases me and says that I got a lot, I got away with a lot more than she did. Um, my dad was a operating engineer for 40 plus years. Um, my mom was a waitress uh, from you know, the, the day I was born until the night before uh, we took her to the emergency room. Uh, she was waiting tables. Um, so again, blue collar family. Um, my sister and I had chores we had to do all the time. Um, we weren't afraid of work uh, we had expectations. We had rules. We had um, times we had to be home. Uh, they they weren't strict, but you know, we we had to follow the rules. I think I probably spent I don't know a lot of my high school weekends grounded <laughs> because uh, you know, again, I, I wasn't always on time or didn't always follow the rules, and um, yeah, we we had a good life. We we were learned the value of a dollar. We weren't spoiled by any means, but uh, you know, we knew that my parents were hardworking people. And um yeah, that that's that's sort of that's sort of our story. Um that's my story. That that's kind of the the, the quick the quick buy story. Um I, I did continue to play the drums. Uh I played in some heavy metal bands, which is you know, kind of funny. Uh, a lot of heavy metal bands in New York City. Uh, we, we gigged in New Jersey, we gigged in the boroughs, you know, locally. Uh, we It was an all-girl band, which people didn't expect. Um, I think we probably could have got signed, but you know, that's that's a luck thing and we, we just didn't get it. Um, I married my high school sweetheart uh, and uh, he joined the Marine Corps and After he joined the Marine Corps, uh, I went and moved down south with him in uh, outside Camp Lejeune uh, on Topsail Island for a couple of years, which was very fun, especially in your early 20s. And, um, you know, when he deployed, I I came back up to New York and and went to graduate school.
1: So you've had, the thing I like hearing is I find that, People's origins when they grow up in a blue-collar environment and they have rules, but they don't necessarily always follow them, they skirt them and get in trouble, but they have a mm-hmm. pretty normal life. I find when they become young adults into adulthood though, they're more grounded.
0: Mm-hmm. Um oh, for sure. People, yeah. people
1: that I communicate with that have parents that are jet setting around or they're they're always you know, keeping up with the Joneses or the Smiths. They're always Mm -hmm. living a facade. Then their kids try doing the same. They don't know how to have a grounded life because life isn't meant to necessarily be perfect. No child's perfect as a single dad Mm -hmm. of five kids. um, My kids weren't perfect. They snuck out, they did things. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they knew dad was out for the evening working with a client and they, they, you know, they broached the fact, and the only reason they ever got caught is sometimes I'd go to appointments before the age of, you know, all this technology, and the person wouldn't be there. So if, I'd come home. Well, and guess what? One, yep. one of the kids weren't home, right? It's like, yep. where's where's such and such? And then the kids would try, other kids would try, you know, fabricating stories or whatever. And that's how people got caught. And I look back at it and, and think to myself, that's life, right? Things are going to happen. I-
0: I'm glad I had a curfew because some of my friends that didn't have curfews are the ones that got in trouble. So at the time, did I want to have to be home by midnight? No. But my mom was a waitress. So she was up because she worked nights. And a lot of times she got home around 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And if I was late, she was up and waiting. And, you know, my mom, you know, she would ground me and I would sometimes be able to get out of it. But when my dad grounded me, it stuck. So that that meant that meant it was pretty substantial what I did. Or you know, I never did bad bad stuff, but I did enough to get in trouble. And well, and, then I, I went and, and I and I served it.
1: You're a teenager. You were you had angst and yeah, things that you wanted to accomplish. And yeah, with my kids, um, you know, it was it was tough because when I got divorced, they were very young and had joint custody and there was mixed messages so you, you know you mm-hmm. you having that consistency whether one was tougher on you and grounding mm-hmm. than the other at least you, you there was there was consequence right yep. there was some wiggle room with one there wasn't with the other that's the yin and mm-hmm. yang of being raised my mm-hmm. kids would go to an environment when they weren't with me where it was they could like you said your friends it was a free-for-all yeah they could do whatever right so yeah um yeah then when I got full-time custody of them, it was, I had to reprogram them because they had, they had a parent switch, right? They yeah. acted a certain way with dad, a certain way with mom. And all of a sudden, hundred mm-hmm. percent with dad and dad's a lot more, um, like your dad. Oh,
0: yeah, more, oh, t- yeah. More,
1: this is the way it is. Sorry. You know what? This is life you learn now because in the future, when you get into trouble, it won't be me that you're answering to. It'll be the police or some person yeah. of authority and, and you, it could ruin your life so let's figure this out this is a consequence right and it is what it is we have mm-hmm. to have we have to have defined things to live within wouldn't you agree it, it's important oh, for, for sure. us. Even, yeah. even in society itself people say i wish there was no rules mm, no but we need to have it has rules. to be
0: rules yeah um, Anarchy. i mean i'm yeah i mean i i used to work in downtown manhattan i my doctors are in the city um my husband works in the city Um, I stay out of it as much as possible right now. That's not a place where you want to be hanging out. And it's just from what you said, because there's no accountability for people's actions and it's not safe. You know, it's just, it's just not safe. So, I mean,
1: it's kind of scary though, isn't it, Melissa? You think about even a hundred years ago, right? You know, in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. People were still walking the streets carrying guns. There mm-hmm. was outlaw justice still. There was sheriffs mm-hmm. and legal stuff within our North American society. But And people didn't feel safe. They were mm-hmm. protected by the rancher who had hired guns or whatever. And now all of a sudden you move into a more cultured, civilized society where you think you're safe. And then it seems that in some ways we're de-evolving back to you know, this is the wild, wild west, we're going to do things how we want to do it. And if you, you know, this, be damned if you don't want it, want to listen, because we have a gun, right? And I'm yeah, not against, I'm not, nec- yeah. I'm not talking about gun ownership, whether or not mm-hmm. people have the the right to own a gun or not own a gun. It's just that, I see a lot of de-evolution even in my, in my country of people taking things into their own hands more so after the pandemic. I don't know if you feel the same way. I, I
0: think so. Yeah. It's, it's like a, to me, it's like a boiling pot of spaghetti that's just boiled over it, you know, especially in New York city. Um, you know, my, my personal feeling is because there's no accountability because we have a revolving system of no, not keeping people accountable. Um, you know, that that's that's why you have people that are continuing to commit crimes because they're not there's no standards they're not being held accountable and and it's 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 everyone it's not you know one particular person it's it's everyone and it affects everyone and you know it's it's unfortunate and and that's exactly what is happening you know people are on subways and you know they see somebody getting beat up and instead of helping they're videotaping it um I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just me from a personal experience as a female. If I see somebody getting kicked in the face, I'm not going to videotape it. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and help them, unless I'm you know trying not to get shot. But that that's that's what people do now is they'll they you know they'll do whatever as they say for the gram, versus you know trying to help. And and you know the cops' hands are tied, and you know there's good cops, there's bad cops, but at the end of the day. Um it's it's just the way the way life is right now. And you know,
1: live in terror every time you get mm-hmm. on public transit, right? We have that yeah. problem here in our train system. We have it on our bus system. There's, you know, people have been in uh bus shelters and gotten stabbed, and it wasn't there wasn't even yeah. any correlation to knowing that person, just mm-hmm. absolute violence and just stuff like that is where they've literally our province, which is for those listening in the states that aren't realizing a province is the same as your state, right? Mm-hmm. Our provinces are a lot bigger than most states. So, and we literally, last year, they had to implement our 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 uh, premier, which would be your guys' governor, mm-hmm. literally mandated and brought an extra police force in the, in the two largest cities, which are Edmonton and Calgary, because of the amount of violence that had been happening mm-hmm. within the trains and the bus system. And it's not always necessarily people that are homeless or people mm-hmm. that are, or mentally ill. There's mm-hmm. just some bad people out there. Right, yeah. No,
0: just, I, 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 of, I drove of
1: terrorizing people.
0: The other day I was down the city and I had to get off the major, uh, the Deegan and I decided to travel uh, through the side streets to get back up to, you know, my, my part of the woods and, you know, it's to a point where you gotta hope that you get through a light. You don't want to get stuck at a light in certain areas because there's so many people that are. You can tell that they're clearly on drugs. They're clearly mentally unstable. They're knocking on your windows. They're coming to your cars or standing in front of your car. They're, they're, they're drugged out of their mind. And you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, and I've I've worked with my populations, mentally ill, chemical abusers. Um, we're at crisis levels and, you know, instead of helping these people or, or, or trying to, uh, find them treatment centers or get them off the street, um, we're putting up places where they can get clean crack pipes and clean rigs and clean needles and enabling. And
1: we're doing the same garbage in our city and those listening that don't appreciate, our opinion, we everybody, even you listener or people watching, you have the right to your opinion. I don't necessarily agree with it either. Um, I have it's polar opinions from different people within my associations and in my tribe and literally they're, they're, they're doing one in our city right now. It's been the people have been fighting and people saying, well, they got to go somewhere and within four blocks of this usage site there's Mm -hmm. four daycares there's a school and residential is less than a quarter block away from it like a Mm -hmm. a, an older area of the city and they're putting a use area there and the police say oh we'll monitor it better and blah 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 and the businesses around there and freaked out the city did some underhanded stuff and and approved it without doing a consensus of the area so now it's going i haven't talked to my friends that are that are in the area that have businesses um, whether or not it's escalated to court yet but it's the city's getting taken to task over it Mm-hmm. And everybody's saying, oh, you don't care about these people. Well, sure, but we can't care about that part of the community and discount the fact that there's multiple daycares, there's a school, there's residential mm-hmm. with young people living all around there. And mm-hmm. yes, some of those people that are drug addicts that are gonna that are using and stuff, it would be safer to give them a usage area, but it also puts it into a perspective of, you know, where are you solving it? You right. know, and, or, yeah, or at they, least if you're going to give them something. Hopefully you're weaning them off and you're helping yeah. them and you're giving them addiction counseling, you're having giving them counseling centers, you're not it's a band aid. All you're doing is trying to centralize where they are as opposed to them being everywhere. But where do you put that safely where the general population is, is safe?
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely the fact. And if you've looked at looked at pictures of like South Philly, L.A., you know, most of the big cities, Chicago, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, and, you know, you know, we can give out so many Narcans, right. Make them available. But sometimes I know people that have had patients that, you know, they've gotten two shots of Narcan and not come back because now they're, they have the, the But even those Narcon
1: kits, they're not the easiest to use depending on what, which ones your, your community or society buys. Right. The Narcon kit that I have because I knew, uh, you know, it's people have been saved, right? All of a sudden mm-hmm. I seen somebody on the road, I get out,
0: but mm-hmm.
1: it's not even a, it's not like an EpiPen injector. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it was right. Meanwhile, that person could die because I'm nervous and fuddling around trying to fill up. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, if, well, it's, it's so do bad smart that... solutions, do smart solutions yeah. that our society needs to do.
0: Yeah. And it's so bad now because of this, 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 veterinary tranquilizer they're putting in called Trank now that Narcan doesn't work with. So now the city in New York is trying to give kits for you to test your drugs to see if there's this this Trank in it. Bec- so the kids don't take it. It's like, what what are we doing? It's it's to me, it's, it's you know, as, as somebody that's worked with people with addictions, had family with people with addictions. I mean, listen, I get it. But it's to me. It's just enabling. It's it's just like you said. It's like you know, putting using a hose on a brush fire, and it's just spreading. And and you know, it's just, it's just it's just not good. And and there's there's been cases. There were cases last year where um, it was uh, some some little like pre K school in the Bronx that um, a little kid picked up a pill that was in the you know in the right right around where the, the play area. And it was fentanyl, and and they survived, but that's what it was. And he, you know, what do kids do when you're five? You put everything in your mouth, and they just happened to pick up something that looked like an M M&M, and M, put it in their mouth, and it was fentanyl. You know, it's it's just, I don't know, it's very scary. I mean, even my son is 13 years old, and you know, trick or treating. You know, you don't eat anything until I look at it, and it's just even even then, there's reality. no guarantee.
1: Even then there's right. no guarantee. Exactly. I know parents now that don't take their kids trick or treating. They yep. take them to there. T- we have communities that have safe Halloween. They have yep. them in a big hall or we have some of our, our malls around here that'll do safe Halloween. And just because of the fact of the level yep. of, you know, danger, not to yep. mention the fact let's feed our kids a bunch of sugar in a diabetic mm. world <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, like, anyway, we could get into lots of different uh, conversations. Sure. we're gonna get we're gonna get going on with some other things that I wanted to discuss with you, but this's been a great conversation thus far. So, you know, first off, sorry about the loss here, Mom. Mike, you know, reading up on you yesterday and going, you know, very emotional, very, you know, heartfelt the what you've, you know shared out there mm-hmm. that I could you know, obviously go and read and and look into. So one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you, though, is after the unfortunate death of your mother from ovarian cancer, you started a journey to fight for patient advocacy. Most Mm -hmm. people have no clue what that is. I do, because Mm -hmm. I believe in that. And I've had other people, again, 20-some years of helping people with their family stuff. Many people need patient advocacy. So can Mm -hmm. you do me a favor... Melissa, what is patient advocacy and how would it have helped your mother had the opportunity been there for her and you were able to utilize it?
0: You know, when my mom got mm-hmm. sick, I, I mean, I'll, I'll start back. You know, my mom was, again, for 40 years, she was waiting tables. Um, very strong, half Italian, half Irish woman. Um, never missed a day's work, even if she didn't feel good. And um you know, my dad had hearts, some heart problems and we always, you know, just kind of thought in the back of your heads, never want to say it out loud. It would always be my dad first, never thought in a million years, my mom would ever be diagnosed with cancer at 68 years old. Um, You know, unfortunately that happened. And, you know, my mom is from the generation that they call the silent generation where, you know, they're sort of doctor adverse. Um, She didn't only went to doctors if she absolutely had to. Um, And we, that's kind of something we learned the hard way. Um, she wound up calling me one Saturday afternoon, uh, crying. She was, in, was telling me that she had a um, uh, a uh, mass, not a mass, but a bump in her stomach. And, you know, honestly, I don't know how I didn't see it because I saw her all the time, but she hid it. She wore extra large shirts and me playing doctor, we took her to the emergency room and, um, you know, I thought, ma, ma, no big deal. It's probably just like an intestinal blockage. They'll do surgery, easy, no, no big deal. When she was in the emergency room, she kept saying to me and my sister, you know, I know this is bad. I know this is bad. I watched it on Dr. Oz. You know, I think my mom sort of was self, self-treating self for a couple months before she uh, actually told my sister and I that this thing was growing in her abdomen because again, she was working. Um, so... In the emergency room, they did a CAT scan, and um, the doctor came back, and he had, uh, you know, his nonverbal communication said it all. And he asked if my parents, he could talk to my parents by themselves. And you know, he didn't say he was for sure that it was cancer, but he said that it was a 23 centimeter mass on her ovary, given she was postmenopausal and her symptoms, um, you know she needed to see her general practitioner or an oncologist right away. And that um, started our journey, um, you know, with with this diagnosis. You know, it took us a couple of weeks to get her in to see an oncologist, and this was back in 2010, so roll the tape forward to 2023. We're probably looking at four to five months here in the US, um, but... It you know me and my sister just kind of tag teamed and kept calling the oncologist to get her and get her and get her in and um you know she finally got in and I'm I'm jumping around I didn't really answer a question on patient advocacy that's but I'll okay. get there no I um, I,
1: pre- I prefer this that's great
0: okay so so you know she went in and um you know they she she was. Uh, she saw a doctor who my sister and I at the time were not very fond of because um, she was a straight shooter and she was a female um, from Iranian descent. She was very smart. Um, And, but again, from the minute we saw her, she said, if your mother has this, I don't know if she does, but I think she does. And it's not a friendly cancer. And, you know, she was kind of my sister and I used to call her, uh, you know, um, gloom and doom because she, you know, sort of we felt that she was very negative. But in the end, uh, every hypothesis, everything that she warned us about, everything she thought could happen, absolutely did happen. And looking hindsight, I appreciated that more of some of the other physicians that we dealt with. That she was
1: very direct. Weren-
0: Yep, and and some of the other physicians were not completely transparent, made a lot of mistakes and gave us false hope. So you don't wanna hear it when you're in it, um, uh, the gloom and doom part, but every single thing this woman said came true, unfortunately, but she was, as you'll read in the book, she was was a a great person and I'm still in touch with her to this day. Um, As far as patient advocacy, where do I start? from the beginning, um, you know, when my mom got her uh, biopsy, um, I found out later. Um, you know, when you have ovarian cancer, you have a mass. Surrounding that mass is something called ascites. Ascites is common with cancer; it's fluid build up around around the tumor. Um, we found out, I found out years later, that they only tested the ascites, which is the fluid. They didn't actually get the needle into the tumor itself. Had they got the needle into the tumor itself, they would have found out that it was four different kinds of sarcomas um, versus the normal platinum-treated um, uh, ovarian cancer. So from the start of my mom's journey, um, the chemotherapy protocol that they um, that we agreed to to put her on um, was 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 ineffective. And we found that out the hard way. Um, I'll roll the tape forward. Once she got the diagnosis of cancer, um, she was they 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 wanted to do surgery right away, and we wanted to do surgery right away. We wanted to get it out as soon as possible. Um, unfortunately, uh, she her platelet levels were too high. Um, Pre-op, so when you have platelet levels that are really high, it makes you a big stroke risk. So, they decided to try three rounds of chemotherapy to shrink the mass, and then that would make for an easier operation long term. So, you know, you have no choice but to agree to that. So, she got the first round of chemotherapy, and she felt okay. You know, was was kind of a layup. So we were like, okay, we can do this. Second round started to get some, some bad symptoms, which are common with, with chemotherapy. Third round was, um, well, before the third round, let me backtrack. Second round, she started getting what we call wasting disease. Wasting disease for a cancer patient is, you know, you never see a heavy cancer patient an overweight cancer patient because um, cancer eats the good cells as well as the bad cells. And, um, she started to lose a lot of weight, lose her appetite, and, and quite frankly, waste, as well as she was very depressed. And so we said to the oncologist, you know, before we agreed to a third round of chemotherapy, we want to do a CAT scan and see if this approach is being effective, because it seems like it's just making a sick lady sicker. So they said, okay, called in the CAT scan. My mom got the CAT scan. Um, before the third round of chemo, my sister brought my mom to the oncologist, the oncologist said, um, great news, uh, the chemo, the cancer, the tumor shrunk in half. So me and my sister were like, holy macro, we're doing the jig, this is fantastic. So we got my mother the third round of chemotherapy. The week after that, she met with this doctor who was the surgeon um, that we called the Grim Reaper. Um, And she told my sister that she read my mom's films with the radiologist and the cancer had not changed at all. The tumor had not changed at all. In fact, it grew. So at that point, the, we had just poisoned my mom a third time to a treatment that was having absolutely no effect, except slowly killing her. And, and as she was suffering. So, um, you know, they, they read the, they read the CAT scan wrong. So, there's throughout the book um, every month from the diagnosis, which was May first, well pseudo diagnosis, till the day she passed away, December fourth. I note what happened in that month, um, the roles my family took, the role I took, you know, because each of us had different roles. Um, my mom's what what I perceived as how my mom was doing with trying to deal with her own. Um, you know, possible mortality, my dad, all the family dynamics. Um, But each month, there was a whoops, there was a mistake, there was a a film read wrong, there was miscommunication, there was some really gross errors, like...
1: um, A lot of negligence happening.
0: uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, here's, here's one, you know, when you have cancer, it's very common for you to get blood clots, my sister noticed my mom's breathing was a little weird. So she, uh, I happened to see the oncologist in the hallway and I said, listen, uh, can you just come look at my mom? Um, she was in a outpatient um, radiology appointment and she wasn't planning to stay, but I said, can you just take a look at her? Cause my, her breathing's a little weird. And I happened to see her, see him at the elevator and, and he came and he's like, I don't think anything's wrong but you know, we'll admit her just to make sure, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that night, my mom was up in the cardiology unit, and um, I was there after work. And uh, um, the one of the residents came in to ask what her um, her healthcare proxy was. And my mom was she had she was on Ativan, she had taken Ambien, she was on uh, pain meds, and she said to him, "If there's no hope, I, I just don't want anything." And with that, he took his pen and paper and left her room. And, and I said, Mama, I said, you just told him that if you have a cardiac arrest tonight, you don't want anything. She goes, no, I didn't. I said, yes, you did. And, and I knew what she meant. Um, but, uh, I, um, I, I needed to, uh, I needed to, um, get him back into the room and, and he I sat him down and I said, sir, what did you just hear? And he said to me, your mom wants nothing. She's, she's no code. She doesn't want anything. I said, absolutely not. I said she doesn't want a vent and she doesn't want a feeding tube. God forbid things go south. If she has a cardiac arrest tonight, you absolutely have to save her. And and with that, he updated his record. Then it gets worse. I happen to look down at her arm because I'm leaving. You know, I'm looking at her IVs and stuff, and we're talking. And I look at her bracelet, and it has another woman's name on it. Now your bracelet is your medical record. It's your meds, it's your allergies, it's your diagnosis, it's everything. And I know I know exactly the woman's name that's on it, I'm not gonna say it for her privacy, but I had my Blackberry at the time, I was tired, it was 9.30 at night, I didn't think to take a picture of it, but I did get the head nurse and boy did they cut that off very quickly and that was a big deal. Um, I mean, my mom, I, I said, you're on a cardiac floor, you could have gone down at 2 a.m. for an angiogram and not even known it because at that point you were somebody else. And you hear those stories happening in the news where somebody gets the wrong knee done for surgery, but this this was real. No, so. it's,
1: it's real. It's real. Well, yeah. Improper you know, so- surgeries happen all the time. Malpractice insurance is getting tested at a high in North America on a constant yeah. basis. And it's not always because of uh, that. The doctors and surgeons aren't good. They're overworked. Yeah. they're 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 having their own challenges in their lives that they're dealing with and trying not to bring that to the job forget it. It, it our home life affects our work life and vice versa it is the reality of life and we have a government system in North America that just keep keeps on sugarcoating and brushing everything over
0: right 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 um yeah yeah no it uh it 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 was a big deal and and they cut it off, but throughout every single chapter in my book, I was in communication with the patient advocate. I went to see the patient advocate personally um every month, I was in touch with the patient advocate. She was a lovely person. she always said the right things, but the problem is she has no ability to make change. She's just a messenger, so. A lot of times you'd get a letter that say, you know, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention. We're going to discuss it with the leadership panel. Um, we're sorry that your mom went through this. Blah 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 blah. blah, Which, okay, thank you, but that that doesn't really. So it's a pas- it's
1: a pacifying letter without real any substance to it or teeth.
0: Yeah, and and I'll tell you in a little while how I found I, I just went through this again with my dad, but you know. As far as advocacy, this is this is the deal. Um, A lot of patients are afraid, and I say, find your voice. A lot of patients are afraid to push back on doctors, and I don't mean push back in an ugly way, in a mean way. I'm just saying, ask the questions that might be tougher. Um, Listen to your gut. Um, You know, be your own advocate, especially if uh, you're on a lot of medications. be an active participant in your own health. Meaning, um, you know, I have a lot of millions of GI issues. I know exactly what doctors I've seen. I know what tests I've had. I know what meds I've been on. I know what surgeries I've had. That's very important because you need to be able to say that to any specialist that you see. Um, right well, all that
1: documentation is important too because when you're dealing with healthcare insurance too, I've d- yeah. had people on my podcast said that, that, and explained the nightmares and wrote a book about it and now have a a giant group that all they do is deal with the miscommunication and the handling of claims and the lies and deception from the health industry from the insurers. Oh yeah that,
0: I mean that that's I mean you, uh, you know my mom ultimately got surgery and the night before again this this doctor pulled me aside out of a room and she's like you know missy um your mom's very sick. She goes, I have a feeling this might be a palliative surgery, meaning I'm afraid we might open her and close her. You know That that happens if they feel like there's nothing they could do. So just, just be aware that that could happen. I didn't want to hear that. And it scared the hell out of me. And I kept it to myself. But the next day, my mom was in surgery for nine hours. So they quote unquote, optimally debulked her, which means they got everything out of her except for microscopic so we were thrilled. I mean, we were. We thought that what couldn't happen, uh, it it actually did happen, and and they were successful. And I mean, we were in the patient lounge. All of us were crying. My dad was crying. The doctors were crying because this was a really complicated case, and it was a really difficult journey. Um, and and she survived it. Uh, you know, she did a couple of weeks in inpatient um rehab, which they had their own rehab facility. And, you know, again, here we go with with issues. And, you know, I could we could talk for a day about issues. But one at one particular point she called me up and she's like, you know, they started me on this new medication and I'm really dizzy. And I'm like, well what is it, Ma? And I, I you know, she read it to me. And it was a, a drug for hypertension hypertension. My mom was hypotensive, meaning she had low blood pressure. Her normal blood pressure was 100 over 70. And this physiatrist decided to call her in hypertensive meds, why? If you, if you give somebody that has low blood pressure, um, pressure to lower your blood pressure, they're gonna pass out. So I left work, thank God I had a great employer. My executive vice president knew what I was going through. He said, you need to leave. Anytime you wanna leave, you leave. Will sweep up after you, and I, and I did, and and I c- can't thank them enough. Um, I went over there. I, I said to the physiatrist, you know, why did you put my mom on hypertensive meds? And he basically gave me the whole white coat doctor thing. Um, I'm the doctor. I know what I'm doing. I'm making the choices. You know, deal with it. Pretty much like that. So with that, I got my car and I drove to the cardiologist's office. Who she did have a cardiologist at the time and. I walked in and they're like you don't have an appointment. I'm like that's okay, I'll wait. I need to speak to Dr. X because this doctor put my mom on a medication. She's currently in the in the hospital and it has to be discontinued and he's not going to do it. So, I'm I'll wait here and so she came out and she sat in the waiting room like who the hell is this girl? And I'm like this is what happened. This is what they did and she discontinued it right away. And you know, these are the kind of things that happen every single day all day long and you know before i left to go in my car to go to that cardiologist's office i said to that physiatrist i said if my mother falls because she passes out and breaks a hip or something worse you are a 100% accountable and you know that was kind of the theme throughout her whole illness you know um constant you know, cost,
1: constant missteps constant, constant battles misdirection constant deception constant uh vibrato that i'm you know look at me i'm the doctor i'm this and that and i'm not picking on doctors because i know a lot of great doctors in any profession you can have people that are full of themselves that are you know there's they just or they used to be a great doctor but because they've been beaten down so much by a system that doesn't support them properly they've now they're mind numb They're emotionally numb and they just, they they lose their sense of compassion and empathy and kindness. It's just, I see it all the time too. I have story after story of that I've dealt with in my lifetime of improper medical attention. Even when my four-year-old granddaughter passed away a few years ago, I'm still convinced there was malpractice, but you know what I mean? They hide things so well, it's so hard to find the truth. And I was in the hospital constantly seeing her.
0: I yeah, no, that system. that that's that's the thing like I tell people, like if you have a loved one and you have the ability, loved one, friend, neighbor, and you can be there, you really have to physically be there. Um, you know, another another one of the probably most gross errors that they made was um they did after she had the surgery, they had to do cleanup chemo. They that was for the microscopic that was left. And it was four days inpatient. I was at work, my sister texted me. My sister and I are very, we're, we're, we're polar opposites in a lot of ways. Um, and and the, the subject line of the text was effing terrible. My sister does not curse. So with that, I Googled the um, chemotherapy that my mother was was being put on. And I printed it, went to the hospital, took one look at my mother. She had every symptom of toxicity. Uh, Poisoning except coma and death and this was only after one uh, one bag and I called the oncologist. I knew he had a boat. It was Labor Day weekend and I said, um, I I said, um, said, listen, uh, I need you to come look at my mom. Um, uh, You know, something's wrong. You know, she doesn't look good. And, and, And he came. He took one look at her, he said, she's fine. You need to stay off the internet. Sorry, do you want to pause this a minute? No. So the, one of the most egregious, egregious uh, mistakes that they made was, you know, she had cleanup chemo that um, was gonna be done post-op. And my sister texted me, I was at work and it, she, alluded to the fact that it was very bad. So I Googled the medication that my mom was on and ran over to the hospital. I took one look at her my mom had every symptom of toxicity, which is poisoning, except coma and death. And I called the oncologist and I said, please come over and see her before you leave. It was a four day weekend. He had a boat, it was labor day. So I knew he'd be unreachable. And, uh, he came, he took one look at her, and he's like, you know, she's fine. You know, for Connie, we have to go for cure. You know, this is normal, this is all normal stuff. And and by the way, Melissa, you need to stay off the internet. And, um, you know, okay. So, you know, he's the doctor. Unfortunately, me and my sister were like, okay, he's gotta be right. You know, she just survived the surgery, so he must be right. Next day was a Saturday. I had. I'm always uh, very good to every single nurse because, in, to me, they're the connective tissue to how well you're going to do in in any hospital. They are probably one of the most important people that you see, and you know, 98% of them are great at what they do and are want to be doing what they're doing. And we had a nurse that had seen my mother before, and she called me on my cell phone. She's like, "Missy, you need to get here. I have orders to hang another bag of chemotherapy. Um, this isn't the Connie that I know." Um, I'm, you know, basically, she's putting her neck on the line, um, and she's not going to hang a bag because she sees what I saw the day before, and you know, was waiting for me to get over there. So I rushed over there, and again, same thing. We called. Now, now we're seeing the the oncologist uh, team member not the guy that has seen my mom for all of these months. And um, he came and, you know, this is this is a whole nother story, but you know, when you see a doctor for a long time or for some kind of uh, severe disease, and one of his partners happens to see you once out of the whole journey, um, he doesn't know you. You know, he, he or she doesn't know you. They don't know what you look like when you're okay. They don't look like when you're happy, sad, depressed, your normal, um, the normal way you speak to people. And, you know, again, he, he looked at her and again, said she was fine. And my dad at this point came over and, you know, my family and I were clinging on to hope and we figured, uh, well, these guys must be right. I mean, they're the specialists. They do this for a living. So they hung the second bag of chemotherapy. And at that point, uh, the next day I went, and I found my mother flat with her arm hanging off the bed and she was throwing up and there was no nurses around and she could have easily aspirated, which a lot of patients that are on chemotherapy do can die and have died from aspiration, pneumonia, um, because they they choke on their own vomit. And um at that point my head exploded and I basically said, I cannot trust you and didn't leave the hospital, we we stayed there uh, until Monday. And um, Monday, the same doctor that told me to stay off the internet uh, came into my mom's room. And at that point, there was a priest there because that's how bad my mom looked. And um, my dad was there, her brother was there. And uh, he, he I was leaning up against the bathroom and I remember he turned around and looked at me and he's like, uh, you're right, she was toxic. And I'm like, I'm like, listen, I'm like, I'm in the reinsurance industry. I said that and I used a couple expletives, but I'm like, this is your job. You know, I said, I I Googled this and, and and now now she's toxic, you know. And when you're toxic from chemotherapy, it's not like, you know, it's not like something where you could take charcoal or, or some kind of treatment and, and it's you're okay. Like my mom lost three weeks of her life, like going in and out of consciousness um she was uh um having delusions she was hallucinating she could not move her head without throwing up and i think at that point he had kind of lost hope um it it stole her spirit it stole her drive um being being poisoned that way and um the 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 surgeon uh and her team came into the room and and they knew it and they knew that we were upset and frustrated and she asked if they could actually write a white paper on you know this this type of med it's called ifosamide toxicity and and you know it's rare but it can happen and this was the absolute um example of why I tell people even though it's not easy and it's not comfortable that you have to find your voice because I wish that I, at that point, had stuck to my gut, um, had pushed harder to uh, get, I don't care, five other doctors to come look at her, not just you know one guy that met her for 10 minutes. Um, I don't know that that would have changed her outcome because I found out years later that um, the type of cancer that she had was very rare. There were four different sarcomas and You know, it's, it's basically a a death sentence when you have them, but I I do wish that I had not, um, I wish that I had not allowed them to, um, tell us that, oh yeah, it's okay. She's fine because she wasn't fine. And, and I knew that, and we just listened because that's kind of what you do. her, Her
1: last, her last week's months of her life would have been a lot different and i hear this from a lot of people in regards to chemotherapy or going into radiation and how what well, i have experienced it with with clients with family it's it's absolutely horrible the degradation of their life just so that they can possibly live like i'm not saying that we shouldn't take the chance if we have educated people yeah. helping us make the right decisions so patient advocacy Is very profound in the sense that people don't realize that they do have a voice, they have more of a voice than they realize and they can stick up for those they love. And, you know, you're going to get backlash. I know my daughter for my granddaughter passed away. She wasn't she for two years didn't leave the hospital. My daughter Mm -hmm. stayed with literally did not leave the hospital except Mm -hmm. to go outside with her in a wheelchair to, you know, to help her out, get some fresh air. And you know, there was nurses, you'd hear them grumbling, or they'd pull me aside because they knew I was coming every day. You know, you need to talk to your daughter. It wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. nurses. They were they were relaying what the doctors were, how mm-hmm. the doctors were treating situations and circumstances. And and they were, like you said, the glue, right? They're the mm-hmm. they're the backbone. My one of my daughters, by the way, is an actual is a nurse. She's a travel nurse and travels around mm-hmm. the country going to smaller places that need help. And, you know, the the horror stories she's told me as well, and the, the lack of respect, telling mm-hmm. you even that comment about stay off the internet, and then mm-hmm. later telling you, oh, you were, you know, you were right. Mm-hmm, well, that changes right. nothing. Your your words are empty. You're, how about you do your job properly, like you're talking well, about? Well,
0: that's so, it. That's it. Yeah. You know? It's like, um, you know, and I, there, I mean, I, I. I I, I, you know, for a long time, it took me 10 years to write the book and, you know, to be honest with you, um, the first, oh God, I would say the first couple of years after my mom passed, I was a horrible, uh, griever, I guess, if you want to say, you know, I have a master's in clinical psychology. I know all of the stages, all the steps and how the, what the DSM five says that you are to be acutely depressed, um. PTSD, um, general anxiety disorder, I had it all. And I was too uh, smart uh, to to get help, and I needed help. But I kind of felt like I'm the type of person that, because my job was so good during the nine-month battle my mom fought, I mean, you don't find employers like that. Um, I felt like I owed them, because uh, I was out so much, in and out, in and out. And and they actually offered me, after she passed away, uh, short-term disability, just to get my head together. And I was too proud to take it. I figured, oh, let me work, it'll take my mind off it. Um, I felt like I kind of owed them and it wound up backfiring significantly. I sabotaged myself. I was uh, down to 115 pounds. Um, people saw it at work. I mean, I would I was wearing size zero. I would layer my clothes. Um, and it wasn't because I was purging or anything like that, but I just wasn't hungry because I was completely um mental head case. And um, you know, I I I was taking um benzodiazepines, so I could even have conversations with people without crying. I was taking uh, antidepressants, all of which I you know, I was familiar with because I worked in uh, mental facilities. I worked in psychiatric emergency rooms. I knew what they did to you. I knew the effect they had on you. I knew the dangers, especially of meds like Xanax. Um, And thankfully I discontinued them on my own. Um, But for probably a good year, maybe more, I, I was my own worst enemy and I had a toddler. So it was it was a lot, but uh, you know, I managed. But where I'm going with this is, I started writing the book um, shortly after she passed, but it was full of rage. I mean, I'm talking to you now because a lot of time has gone by, and I'm I can keep it together because time has gone by and I've I've healed, um, and I sought help. Um, but the first couple of versions, if you read the book, it's it's just um, just full of rage, and and I had to put it down. And then pick it back up when I was at a better place, and um, I had a bunch of people that I either were either professional editors or even just people that had lost parents through cancer, or you know, writers, publishers, whatever. Um, just look at it um, as far as uh, what their thoughts were on it, as far as editing, and um, it's it's funny. One of the consultants that I had edit my book she lost her mom to cancer and she read it and uh, she loved it. And, you know, of course she gave me feedback. And if you read my book, you know, I I do drop a couple F bombs. I'm, I'm from New York. I'm pretty direct myself. And, you know, I had to make a decision of whether I was going to be me or, you know, sort of sugarcoat me. And, and I decided to be me. And if you read some of my reviews, cool thing is, and I'm not trying to be egotistical, but, people say that they feel like they're talking to me at their kitchen table because it's, it's I allow myself to be vulnerable and transparent and and real. And um, I do talk about uh, my, I start the book with a letter to my mother and it basically tells her what happened to me after she died, how I grieved, how I messed up, how I sabotaged, how I could have easily become addicted to benzodiazepines, how I made bad choices, how I finally did seek uh, mental health care and wound up sticking with the woman for six years. Um, And I wanted to, I did that for a reason because I wanted to tell the readers that even with fancy degrees, you can fall down. Even with fancy degrees, you don't know everything, and I did not know everything. and it cost me mentally and physically. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to share all that. And you know, also I added, you know, again, after years of i guess calming down about the situation, every chapter I end with what I learned and what I would do differently, you know, based on, you know, from getting diagnosed to you know, every month of different things that happened to, when she passed away, hospice, you know, what I learned from that and, and and all those things around that. And then all of a sudden we go into a pandemic and I had this crazy thing happen in October of 2020, which you can't even make it up. Um, I have a bunch of GI problems, I've had them forever. I had a bad stomach ache, but I have a high pain tolerance, but I wound up having my husband bring me to the emergency room um I was there 7 hours they weren't that busy and basically it was so bad that I could not reach my phone cuz if I could I would have dialed 911 um uh I they did a endoscopy they scoped me about midnight and they found nothing um they were discharging me and I couldn't move I was on morphine I couldn't move but they're discharging me I, my discharge papers were written out and at one point I said to one of the nurses, I said, said, this is effing ridiculous. And I became a code gray. I became a code gray because I cursed, but I was dying. And when I got up to go to the bathroom, thankfully I passed out uh, from somewhere between my bed and the bathroom. And I woke up and that same nurse that had just unplugged all my vitals, um, you know, the the, uh, you know, all of the, all the vitals and stuff that they're looking for. Um, the same nurse that told me I was a code gray. She also told me I wasn't gonna get anywhere with that kind of mouth, was flooding my body with fluids because my blood pressure was 70 over 30 and my beats per minute were about at 147 and I was failing. And what wound up happening was, long story short, they called a the hospitalist down the entire time I was in the emergency room, they never took uh, a CBC, which is a just a blood count. Had they taken a blood count, they would have seen that my red blood cell count was two. I had an internal bleed. If they had done that, they would have seen that, but they never did that. But damn, did they do that COVID test real quick? And um, they never did a CAT scan either. They need to, you know, people that present with abdominal pain, that's usually the first two things they do. They do some kind of picture and they do some kind of blood work. They didn't either they did a scope. And I don't know how the doctor did not find this, but what I wound up having was something called gastric volvulus. Gastric volvulus is rare. I'm young to have it, but basically my stomach flipped and disconnected from my spleen and my stomach was full of blood. And that's why I was 70 over 30. My red blood cell count was two. I couldn't stop throwing up. But in the discharge papers, it says patient has no abdominal pain. Patients fine. Patients going home. Follow up with your general practitioner. I woke up two days later in intensive care. Thankfully, uh, a hospitalist came down to the ER. He had to change the entire record. Um, I was admitted. I got a CAT scan the next morning. Um, this was the time where you could not have any family or friends in the hospital with you because of COVID, which I got, but it was very, very scary. And uh, all I remember is it was something out of Grey's Anatomy being run down the hallway. Nurses are putting the cap on my hair, um, putting IVs in my arm as I'm running down the hallway. And um, I woke up the next day in intensive care. And all I remember is asking the doctor is, did someone call my husband? Because you can't have anybody there. And um, basically, if they had discharged me, the surgeon and other doctors that I've I have told me I would have died at home. I wouldn't have woke up the next morning. And so thankfully I passed out and this was in that same hospital. And but
1: there's, there, there's malpractice all over the place throughout oh, your yeah. story though. Like it's everything you're talking about would make me want to leave. I yeah, wouldn't live uh, there anymore. I'm just yeah, being no. honest with you no, because no, that that, that, is, I, that is so yeah. broken.
0: Yeah. I, 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 it gets worse, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I wrote the CEO of this hospital. I wrote the person in charge of the emergency room. You know, you get all the the flowery um, wording, letters back. Oh, we're sorry. We're going to, you know, do this to, you know, we're going to make this our teachable moment. Um, we're going to learn from your case, you know, yada, yada, yada. I did call a med- medical malpractice lawyer in my case. The fact that I didn't die, they're not really interested in it. And um, my thing is, it's not even about the money. It's just more of the utter- Shining um,
1: light on the ignorance and- Well, it's and, not even just, ignorance, the stupidity because they should know better. That's and, their and, job.
0: And, but but it's also, it's just gross negligence because how do you have yeah. a surgeon scope you? They, when they scope you, I've had them done 20 times in my life. They put the scope, which has a camera on the end of it into your stomach. How do they not see that your belly's full of blood and also done a 316 is turned the opposite way and your spleen is removed? How does that even happen? You know? Yeah. Um, well, it's just and- like
1: with your mom, too, them not seeing and finding things either. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I would literally, I'd leave the state. I'd yeah, go somewhere. Yeah, no, else. It,
0: this isn't a different state. It isn't a different state. And the good news is that I have very good insurance. So, a lot of the stuff I do go into the city for, especially important stuff, but. You know, recently, uh, at the end of December, you know, my dad passed, and we sort sure of hear about that. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. We, um, he, you know, my dad, he would have been eighty-two this April. Uh, he was diagnosed congestive heart failure, uh, seventeen years ago, and you know, for that kind of diagnosis, seventeen years is a good life. Um. He had a pacemaker defibrillator that was put into him that was never used. Um, thankfully, um, he never asked anybody for help. He was putting um, batteries in his truck in November. He was picking up all the leaves on his lawn in November. Like he was, he was always doing stuff that me and my sister were like, "Dad, let's let's help you. Let's, you know, don't get up on the roof and a hundred degrees and tar the roof." And but that was just my dad. That's his generation. They didn't ask anybody for anything. He became sick the middle of December, and um, you know he was end stage congestive heart failure. It it really sucked, but the pump had been going wrong in his heart for a long time. Um, but now it was the electric, but but we didn't know that at the time. And it, it's it's a long story, but we were an in we were he was an inpatient twice in the month of December. the The worst part about it is. Um, you know, a, a couple things, and this is where now my patient advocacy and my um, podcast interactions, media, everything I'm doing all day long, because it's just, it's not only not acceptable, it's disgusting. Um, on Christmas Day, uh, he um, his defibrillator uh, went off a couple times, and me and my sister were were there, and we called the ambulance. ambulance came and um he went into VTAC right with the ambulance there they gave him um stuff in the ambulance brought him to the hospital they stabilized him at the hospital with the stuff you know for the pace of his heart and you know he he was once they got his pace squared away you know he's ready to get out of there that was just the nature of my dad and um he knew that he wasn't well but he wasn't really willing to give up and um we uh you know, we talked to uh, very smart people from uh, Columbia and, you know, they asked us if we wanted to consider putting in a heart pump. And my dad didn't want to go down that road. He was 81 years old. It was a very big surgery. The rehab would be very difficult. You know, he wasn't a city guy. um, So he said, no, I'm, you know, just give me medicine. I just want to go home. And They said you know you might need palliative care home in the house that kind of thing and and we were in agreement with all of that and um you know we started engaging those resources those resources um the day after christmas and um so we start on the 26th of december engaging those resources social workers doctors hospice uh representatives and um we sit down with palliative care people uh, on the on the twenty seventh, you know, and and he just wants to go home. He wants to live the rest of his days at home with us. And unfortunately, they didn't have the staff. That's what we were told. They didn't have the staff. They didn't have the resources, and um, they couldn't make it happen. So we just kept showing up and following up, and um, you know, it got to the point where. The people that were in charge of making these ha- these things happen were two doors down from his room i was very nice i would knock on the door you know excuse me do you have a update you know no no we don't have anything at this time so it got to the point where i was starting to get aggravated really aggravated and i told my sister i said you know what i'm going to go sit at the elevator and watch she's going to be leaving at 4 30 because it's the end of the business day and we're still not going to have an answer and sure as hell who do i see the person in charge of getting my dad the hospice stuff in order was leaving without giving us any answers. So at that point they said they were going to give us a private room and he he was starting to fail rather quickly. And, um, I told my sister, I said, we're not going home. And she's like, yeah, we're definitely going home. I said, Alicia, we're not going home. I said, this, this isn't happening. I, I, I could feel it. We're not going home. And, you know, with that, we got a, a private room and, um, uh, he he started to actively die, and um, the I had started I had asked the doctors to put pain meds, benzodiazepines, comfort meds in his regular regimen um, four days before he died, um, and not where he has to ask for them because I knew he was not in the condition to ask for him, nor was that the way he was, and they didn't do it, so. The, the day before he passed away, um, I slept over. My sister and I both slept over. And again, the doctors failed to put in the orders for comfort meds. So here I go again. And, and, and when my mom died, I mean, she was so weak from cancer. Um, you know, while I had terrible images for years of watching that, watching my dad was a thousand times worse because... I don't know if it was because he was a man. I don't know if it was because it was sudden. I don't know if it was because he was fighting it, um, but it was it was horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And in at, at one point the night before he passed away, um, my sister and I asked one of the nurses, please, please call the on-call doctor and get us something, get us something, please. And And they called and they got a pill called in my dad didn't have the ability to swallow anymore. He had the death rattle from the day before. And they called in a pill. I'm like, you know, what, 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 what freaking planet are you guys on, you know? And make a long story short, um, the entire night was horrifying. And um, the nurse, the head nurse came in about eight o'clock, the morning of the 30th. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I wish you and your sister had made this decision a day ago. And I said, and that's where I just, I was tired. I hadn't slept. I was crying. I said, we made it on Tuesday officially. We started the process on Monday. This was Friday morning at eight o'clock. I said, are you out of your beep, beep, beep mind? And with that, um, a palliative care uh, nurse practitioner came in. She took one look at me, took one look at my dad. And she said, okay, we're going to, calling the medication and I said how long and she said uh five minutes I said no really how long and she's like five minutes and it, it took about an hour and 15 which after what I had already witnessed for 72 hours um an hour wasn't gonna change much um and they eventually did you know get him the comfort meds um the doctors two of the doctors that I that I, I liked and that were consistent um apologized to my sister and I in the patient lounge, but at that point it was too late. You know, we had already no, but there
1: were, there were apologies are empty, just like they were with your mom.
0: Yeah, that, that's Even it or like, with
1: you. It's it's yeah. it's yeah. just it's it is disgusting like you said earlier.
0: It's 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 not it's not acceptable. It's not okay. And right now I'm in the process of um discussing um with the people that um, are in charge at this facility because um you know th- this is this is not the first person this has happened to this is not the last person this has happened to and it's going to continue to happen and they need to have some accountability and um I'm not afraid to um, tell my story I'm not afraid to write letters I'm not afraid to sit uh, on the other side of a table from a CEO because they're a person just like me but I am not gonna have my dad be their uh aha moment, their learning expect learning experience. Oh, yeah, their... those
1: those those crap letters that's saying that this is gonna be their teaching moment. But yeah, what what can somebody immediately start doing that's you know, to make a difference and take up raising the, you know, the awareness mantle themselves with all this stuff that's going on? People that are listening to this, what can they immediately do, Melissa?
0: you know, this is what I, this is what I tell a lot of people is there's, there's a couple things, you know, you have the terrible stories. Like I just told you three of them. Right. But is, if you're actively sick, if you're actively ill, if you have a loved one that's actively going through something, first thing I always tell people to do is have your, you have your patient record, have your patient file. If you don't have it hard copy, get it electronically. Um, you need to have it, you need to read it. I found, I, I looked up, I combed my dad's for a month. There was about a 50% error rate in his in his file. They wrote, the emergency room doctor said that he was not, um, he did not take his meds as he was supposed to, it was complete crap. He absolutely did. In fact, the meds that they said that he did not take and that he was not compliant on, he wasn't even on before this admission. Um, they copy and paste. Um, you know, the other thing is, again, know your, know, know your disease process, know what you have, know what doctors you've seen, know what medications you're on, know what they're for. Um, A lot of times people don't know this. And I've done enough podcasts with even doctors that I know what they look for. When you go, you have that 10 minute window when you're speaking to them, you know, they want to know um, what's your history. Um, what medications have you had? What tests have you had? Um, What surgeries have you had? If you have a symptom, when does it happen? What makes it worse? What makes it better? Like if you spend your time in a doctor's office and you're having to think of those things, you're not going to have the time to give the doctor the full picture. So if you can go prepared with stuff like that, um, you're gonna get better value out of your visit, better value out of your appointment. Um, you know, you know, the the other, the other thing I always tell people is um you know that you're in charge of your your care. you're in charge of your insurance you're in charge of the doctors that you choose um you know recently i had to find a, another doctor for for uh, uh reasons uh, that that you can imagine and you know on the internet you could find out what people think of doctors i mean i'm very pro uh healthcare provider i'm very we pro-owners. have a medical
1: we have a medical system here where you can go and it rates the md and, and it actually has a scoring system and people can leave comments the medical yeah, industry the medical industry hates it but that oh well
0: yeah that that's pretty, that's what i tell people it's like yeah, if you're if you're research gonna,
1: the doctor you're seeing like honestly if yeah and if, and don't be afraid to say hey i want another opinion oh i want another opinion and if mm-hmm. they're and if they're smart smug with you their diagnosis is smug right? If their attitude and their personality is smug, the way they run their, their, their diagnosis and their advice is smug, and run the other way.
0: Yeah, and they should want that second head opinion. Yeah, that that's the way I look at it. They should want that. Yeah, don't do it.
1: Don't do it. Don't have a second opinion from a doctor that's in the same practice. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I hear people say, Oh, we had somebody else. And, Oh, well, I'll call on my colleague. No, you're not going to call on your colleague. You're going to, I'm going to get somebody that's not even in your office that doesn't even know you may know of you, but there's no tie so that there's an yeah. unbiased opinion
0: yep. based and, and on don't, don't, their don't
1: experiences. Think,
0: yeah. And don't think that they're not all connected because most of them are, I mean, for oh, me, absolutely.
1: And depending on the community you're in, absolutely.
0: Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And you, you have to, you have to be your own advocate. Like if you're, if you're, going to buy a car, you're going to, you know, you do that research to see which car you want based on feedback or, you know, how the engine works or whatever. Why wouldn't you do that for what doctor you're going to pick? Like for me, I had an example where I had Crohn's and I needed to uh, get my colon out. The doctors close to where I live, probably 60, 70% of them said I was going to come out of surgery with a bag. I didn't want a bag. My nephew had a bag. It just I just was hoping I would not have to get one. I got another opinion in the city um, and the doctor said to me, you have, I'm 95% confident that you're not gonna wake up with a bag and I didn't. Um, so it, just just for me getting that second opinion and trusting this woman, it, it, instead of having to have three surgeries to fix, uh, if you if you get a bag, I only had one. And I was in and out in five days. So. It's
1: difference of, of, of a person being compassionate because my brother in law had the same surgery for colitis, and they mm-hmm. every year he'd get his he'd get scoped, and they found cancer. Mm-hmm. So he was told by most people, because we have the committee of they people mm-hmm. listening. I'm doing air quotes. The committee of they thinks they, you know. You take other people's that well this person had the surgery they're having a bag it's you're going to have that happen and so my brother-in-law yeah. thought for sure and he had a couple doctors that come in and one of the doctors said you know what i'm pretty sure i can do it it's going to be a little bit longer but i'm pretty sure i can do it you're not going to have a bag when you woke up and mm-hmm. even though he was he, he gave him hope but it was the confidence of that doctor and mm-hmm. the body language tonality like my sister said we just knew that he was genuine mm-hmm. that he was real yeah. Brother-in-law had the surgery. He's got no bag. And that yep. surgery is over like 10, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. That's right? what this woman, that's what this woman said to me. She looked at me when it was a Friday, I was really sick. And she's like, okay, we need to do this. And she's like, when can you, and and she asked me, she goes, when do you want to do it? And I said, okay, well, when can you do it? Cause of course I was a little scared. She goes, how about next Tuesday? And I'm like, okay. And it, it was just, it was just that easy. And, you know, again, if I had not, done my due diligence, I know I, in fact, I'm 80% confident that I would have had the three surgery deal where, you know, they give you the bag, then they have to, you know, do two other surgeries to correct that. So, you know, I always, you know, the internet could be, you know, when my mom was sick, it was not always your best friend because you saw a lot of the 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 bad um, prognosis the of ovarian cancer. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it did give us um, uh, information that was not readily available, like for example, when she was toxic. You know, same thing with my dad. Um, you know, so now take, that it, I'm- take it
1: take away with a grain of salt. Anything you search on the internet, though, you should always look at different. I tell people, don't click the first things. I don't care what you're researching, what service you're using, click on it and read other stuff. And then to take to try. It, it, we're our, we're so emotional because of what we're reading about medical stuff. Get somebody that's not directly tied to it to read the same thing. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. a close friend. They're tied to your emotion, but they're Mm -hmm. thinking of it differently. They approach and visualize and and internalize things differently and read the same thing you're reading and say, so, you know, John, Sally, what do you think of what what this is saying? And then Mm -hmm. have a discussion about it. Don't too many people uh, like self-diagnose over the internet and they've never read more than one thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it that's cannot be That
1: you cannot do that. It, the de facto standard of of people reading an article about anything, I don't care what it is, or listening to a media outlet about what's going on in the world. That's mm-hmm. one uh, that's one opinion based on their colored lens, right? You need to continually, people listening or watching, you need to be an advocate for yourself or for others. When you're researching, research more than one thing. Talk to other people. See what their thought process is. Develop a tribe of people that you trust that will give you an honest, straight-up opinion and not blow sun, sunshine up your ass.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's sort of, I think, where we are now with, like, post-pandemic medicine. I know you guys have your issues. We have a lot of issues. Um, you know, there's a lot of nurses that are – Here, you know and that have lost their jobs uh in america that you know have built i want to say like coalitions and are are you know challenging the the standards challenging the norms um you know sharing things that the nurses take all the
1: bullshit they take all the crap like i tell I, i tell people in a normal hospital hierarchy the doctor is is the the king and he's mm-hmm. dictating to his servants, the nurses, the LPNs, the nurses' aides, they do all the shit, sloppy work, have to put up with all the garbage, the yep. mistreatment, They, but the doctor gets all the accolades for 10 minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah, minutes and then- and, Or whatever, and,
1: that, that, and, and the, the whole yeah. hierarchy of the medical system in North America and really a lot of places in the world is broken.
0: Oh, it's yeah. completely
1: no. broken. And and we need to stand up and start telling people this and why you're on my show. And I talk to people about it all the time, right? Yeah. But the I, I, thing re, is, I is, read people's body language all the time when it comes to med- and medical professionals. And and you can tell when they're full of garbage too. It, your yeah, radar, well, that, your spidey sense goes off if you're oh, yeah. actually and, listening for it.
0: Yeah, and that, that compassion element. You know, I, I mean, listen, when I was in the hospital, October, 2020, all the nurses were, you know, most of them had PTSD. They were overworked, underpaid. Um, I'd, I'd asked a couple, you know, hey, has the hospital ever bought you lunch? You know, any, combat pay, because, you know, in with the pandemic, and they basically told me the only people that gave them anything were like local restaurants, nothing came from the hospital. And, you know, I make sure I thanked every one of them when I'm, whether I'm an inpatient, or whether I'm visiting somebody, I always try and help out the best I can, because they're completely understaffed. I saw that, you know, especially the end of December with my dad, um, where, you know, a nurse might have 10 patients, which patient to staff ratios is that's that's very, dangerous and i saw it firsthand um you know um but the burnout
1: uh, burnout is huge with nurses so then you get the older nurses that get to a point where they're mentally and emotionally numb just like it happens with many medical professionals and then they end up being put in charge of the other nurses or you know my daughter I'll talk about units where there's five six nurses on and the and the charge nurse isn't doing her job is sitting there mm-hmm. or isn't even present and there's two nurses that are compassionate kind and caring doing all the work while the other three sit there and visit and yeah. you know what I mean and, and are doing shoddy work it doesn't mean they were always like that but the system is killing them
0: yeah that's and making absolutely them it. emotionally dead right yeah and yeah and the the other it's thing sad. is that it's just for terrible. us there, there's so many, because they're short in staff, they have a lot of um, traveling nurses or, um, you know, per diem nurses. And, you know, here's the thing that I saw, like in the first inpatient stay, he was in just a regular, I guess, just an inpatient sick unit, right? The next time he was in a cardiology unit, but in seeing the different nurses, most, I would say at least 50% of them did not pull paycheck from the hospital. They were like temps or per diem nurses. So you know, if you're if you're working in cardiology on Monday, you're working in med surge on Tuesday, you're working in I don't know dialysis on Wednesday. You know, every single one of those specialties has idiosyncrasies and 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 um, stuff you need to know to do your job effectively. And some of these nurses, and it's not their fault; they're just doing the 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 you know more with less because they're just overworked and they don't have the time. It's all
1: band-aids. It's all temporary. It's not healing yeah. the situation. It's covering it. I, I hear this all the time consistently. Or, you know, like everybody in the U S brags about Canada's healthcare system. We have our challenges here, our national healthcare system. And what the media wants to tell you there is that it's perfect. Yes, it's perfect. I live here. It's it's got its own challenges. Mm -hmm. And it's falling apart across our country so much so that if you travel from province to province, they're they're recommending that you have travel insurance, even though there's supposed to be national health, national health care to cover you. Mm. There, there there's certain circumstances or horror stories where, you know, something's required, and it's not getting dealt with. And you could be, you know, even though they're not supposed to do it, you could be handed a bill with that province when it's supposed to be covered under the National Health Care Act. So, you know what I mean? I I've am. watched the de- evolution of our health care. One of the times it was the shining thing in the world was our health care in Canada. Mm-hmm. But it's not that way anymore. Now it's just used as here's a bouquet of flowers, right? Mm-hmm. And we got it wrapped in some paper, but if you take the paper off, it's all rotten at the bottom. Like, you know what I mean? We're only seeing the top beautiful roses, but the rest hasn't been taken care and maintained. It's a facade, right? So to hear the stories of what I hear and you're not the only person that I've talked to. I've had people on my show that have dealt with so many different circumstances of it, it, it. I see that coming here and, and evolving way quicker than I'd like it to. and, you know, mm-hmm. patient advocacy, being the observant, and making sure that we ask good questions, and don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. I tell people that all the time. Well, the doctor's gonna, you know, they're gonna take it out on the patient, or once mm-hmm. I leave, or they won't listen. You know, they're we're gonna get blackballed. Well, better to be blackballed for sticking up for for something you believe in, and. You know, like in our city, I don't know, let's buy six hospitals, because we're well, 1.5 million people obviously not as big as where you come from. But you know what, there's other choices, there's other places, leave this city, go to a, go to a neighboring city, they got five, six hospitals, you know what I mean? Like, there's never say never <laughs> that yeah, no, don't, absolutely. don't comply and don't lay on the side of the road and, and give up and die based on the fact of somebody's so-called profession, because they went through and got a, a degree in medicine and they've practiced this long. It doesn't mean crap. It, are they a good person? Are they kind? Are they a good? Yeah. Are they a patient advocate themselves? They right, need to have right. that training in school and they don't get it.
0: Right. Well that, that's the whole compassion thing. Like I've seen my general practitioner for years and he, you know, he's retiring. He's, he's, I don't know, in his sixties maybe, but he, and I've, I've talked to other doctors that, you know, right now, a lot of these practitioners are seeing patients every 10 minutes. You can't do your job in every, every 10 minutes. That's just, just impossible. You know, um, they give them 15
1: minutes here. The yeah, GP here got 15 minutes. That's it. Yeah. And, and, and he, no more than two things to discuss with, the, yep. with that person.
0: And that's more reason why you have to be prepared. Cause that's, that's the only snapshot that you have. And I make a that, list. That's if what's I go scary. Ahead. Yeah, that, that's the scary thing. Right. It's it's just and and primary care, a lot of medical students now. I just I just wrote a white paper on it the other day. They're not going into primary care because there's more overhead and they're paid the least. But the 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 terrible part about that is 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 here, um, with a lot of insurance policies, you need your GP to write a referral for you to see that specialist. So they're usually patients' first appointment. So, you know, not only are they that important but i think the statistics now are about 40 percent of their job is administrative because of these referrals that they have to write so you know that that's that's another thing it's i mean i could go on forever
1: well we could keep on going for hours we're already well over the time that i promised you we wouldn't be doing this but um i appreciate you giving some extra time and sharing your knowledge and your experiences Um, The last thing I'm going to ask you, and then we're going to wrap this up, is if you had to give our listeners one last closing message, Melissa, what would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? Hmm.
0: I've been told from a lot of people, friends, family, close, close people, people that probably shouldn't tell me these things. um, Miss, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, You're not going to change anything. Nothing's going to change in the hospital. Healthcare is what it is. Um, you know, almost like, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna make a difference. I can tell you, and it's not an egotistical thing. I am making a difference. I talk to people globally. I talk to people like yourself. I spread my message. I'm working on an application now that's that's going to be giving tips when you go to a doctor's appointment. But, you know, as far as um, giving a heck is. I would just say stick to your uh, goals. Um, it's not always easy at the time. It's not easy to be the person that is maybe going against the grain and not just um, being okay with people's um, mistakes or or holding people accountable. It's not easy to be maybe perceived as the uh, difficult person um, or the person that is not just going to like you said uh lay down and take it but um you know it, my goal and my journey is to help others and and keep speaking um to people so they can find their voice and so they don't wind up like my mom did or my dad did or me almost did um you know and that you know there are things that you can do to uh, help your healthcare outcome in in many circumstances, and 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 you know just just you know keep at it, and 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 you'll 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 get there. It's not always it's not an easy road, but you got to keep at it.
1: Yeah, well, anything worth its value in life um, that you're trying to achieve is outside of our comfort zone.
0: I don't mm-hmm. care what it right. is,
1: right? So, mm-hmm. people listening or watching. Do what you need to do, and understand there might be some discomfort. But guess what? The person that you're dealing with as an advocate, what guess what they're going through? Yeah, far times worse than what you're going through. And if it has to do with yourself, and you have to be your own advocate, mm-hmm. you know, just realize that it could be um, giving you that extra opportunity to survive, to live, yeah. to prosper again. So don't be afraid to challenge the medical industry again. For those listening or watching, there are a lot of great people in the medical industry, right? Mm -hmm. I know a lot. I have clients that are nurses. I have clients that are in the medical industry. There are some really good people, but there's a lot of shitty people in all professions. So if you run into somebody that's garbage and doesn't want to listen to you, go find somebody else. I know that isn't necessarily easy. There's cities in our country where like my daughter lives in one of the cities in, in a neighboring province. She's been they've been there for over two years and still don't have a doctor. They're on a waiting mm-hmm. list. There's yeah. such a shortage right. of medical professionals, right? So yep. they go into a walk-in clinic where they see somebody. There's no consistency. There's no compassion in and out right mm-hmm. here. Take a pill. No yeah. questions, no whatever. So that's another thing I'll, I'll end up saying too. If your doctor is always prescribing you stuff and, you know, not really present in the conversation, not asking you questions and always writing you scripts goes, you know, run because you yeah. don't know what that script is, is really going to do because they just, it's easy for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It
1: push you out the door. They're going to get their clinic or wherever they're at. going to get paid and next.
0: Yeah, that's it. It's it. That's exactly it. I mean, it, it's it's all of that, and um, you know, we we just have to give the people the, you know, the, you know, not to be afraid to to, to again find their voice. I mean, it's just you, you just you it, in this stage of the game, you absolutely have to do it, and you're not always going to agree with everybody. Everybody's not always going to agree with your approach. I always approach every situation um, calm, cool, and collective. And, and I did in my dad's case until I could no longer be. And, and it, it's funny because, you know, me and my sister, again, were very different in that aspect. And, um, you know, she has her uh, things that she's very strong in and I have my things that I'm very strong with, and that's why I think we work well together as a team. Um, but, um, you know, you, you just, you just have to do it. You don't, you don't have the option anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, our time is up. I want to respect our listeners and your time. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners what's the best way to reach you?
0: Uh, my website is www.melissamalanfi.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. And it's just my my name. And I blog a lot on different um emerging issues that are going on. A lot of it's healthcare well you have it on your health.
1: website. Yeah on your website you have an actual blog area. Yep. Yes, yeah. so I do. I'll make sure all that I'll make sure well I checked checked it all out of course. <laughs> um, I will make sure that goes into the show notes. For the new listeners go to giveaheck.com. That's giveaheck.com and go and hit the podcast portal button you'll see melissa's face and below that you'll see the abbreviated show notes and i'll make sure that her links for all her social media as well as her website is present there so that you can reach out and you know give a heck and Mm -hmm. realize that you can learn to you know live a purposeful life for others and live a purposeful life for yourself and that you don't have to you know just Sit back and let life control you. You can you can be the conductor in your own life, right? So for sure. Thank. Any last closing comments?
0: Do your best to stay healthy. Um, Research stuff and um, try and stay out of the hospitals.
1: Yeah, that's good (laughs) advice. So thanks so much for being on Give Act, Melissa. I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences so that others too can learn. It is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, together let us all strive to give a heck.